And that's the idea that in this passage, Paul wants to impress upon those who would listen, those who would read. The only problem is, is that some of the Jews he's addressing, and and even some of the Gentiles, uh, consider God more like this heavenly CEO. And how God interacts with people, he's he's a benevolent CEO, he's a great company owner, who generously um, pays uh, his, the people who serve him. He gives outstanding benefits. He's gracious. He's a gracious employer, not a stingy one. He, but he is a gracious employer to those who work on his behalf, to those who serve him, to those who follow his instructions. And that's what, what Paul is, is wanting to address. You see, the, the main the main idea, the central statement upon which everything in this passage, no matter what part of the passage you're dealing with here, it, it, it revolves around this statement in verse 28 of, of the end of chapter 3. Look at it with me. 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith. How are we justified? How are we declared righteous, declared acceptable by God? We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, just an interesting little note. Um, in, in Luther's German translation of the Bible, it says that we are, he wrote, we are justified by faith, and he had this German word, allein, alone, right? And he's not the first one to do this, like he didn't have an axe to grind. There's actually some manuscripts from the Middle Ages that have the word alone here. We are justified by faith alone, We're declared righteous by God on the basis of faith alone, apart from works of the law. And as I hinted at before, this is a really troublesome statement for some of the Jews Paul is talking to. In a sense, them's fighting words, right? You're not justified by works of the law. Whoa, Paul. Hold up, right? After all, the Jews' life was defined by adherence to and devotion to the law, right? In, in varying degrees, uh, they saw their devotion to the law, to God's law, as, as all defining for who they were as a people. And so there are many objections and, and, uh, and, and questions that Paul anticipates and answers in this passage regarding this idea that a person is justified by faith alone, apart from, regardless of, works of the law. Now, I, uh, I've been taking uh, a, I'm in a doctoral degree. I just finished um, in October a doctoral research and writing class. And one of the things that they just hammered home in this class was, if you're going to present a, a new idea or, or a controversial idea, you have to address the strongest, what, what can be the strongest objection to that argument or to that idea. And, and even if your hearers don't think of it, it's your responsibility to raise the strongest objection to your thesis, to your idea, and then smash it, obliterate it, put it, put it to the side, right? So, if Paul wants to argue against this deeply ingrained, long-standing idea in Judaism that God justifies or rewards those who 
obey Him, who work for Him, who are devoted to Him, then Paul's going to need to come up with an airtight argument, something almost irrefutable. And what better place to start than good old Father Abraham, right? How many of you know that song? It is an annoying song. Father Abraham. Had many, right? That one? Yep. There's actually some significance to it. But um, so Paul's primary strategy here in in these verses uh, of the beginning of chapter four, one that will address most of the outrage that immediately just was incited in, in, in people's emotions and feelings, most of the disbelief, the way he's going to address that is to evaluate the life of Abraham. Because you remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, uh, or, or the Jews respond to Jesus, we have Abraham as our father, right? That's, that's kind of like um, trump card. Like, I'm playing spades. That's ace. Like, ace of spades. Like, that's trump card. We have Abraham as our father. Right? And so Paul is now going to say, that's not your trump card. Um, after all, if Father Abraham was not justified by his works, if good old Father Abraham was justified by faith alone apart from works of the law, then guess how you're justified? You're justified in the same way as your father Abraham. And Paul doesn't hesitate to say, if this is true for Abraham, it's true for you. It's true for you and me. It's true for us. So Paul begins chapter 4 with this question. Look at it with me. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Or some of you may have be using different translations. It may say, what did Abraham, our forefather, discover What did he discover about about justification and salvation? Again, the the assumption, the prevailing theory in Paul's day about Abraham is that God embraced him because he was such an overwhelmingly righteous man. That's why God chose him. If you're reading Genesis, Genesis 11, there's the Tower of Babel. Everything's going south. Everything's going bad. You have a list of nations, and then in Genesis 12, out of nowhere, God calls Abraham. And the Jews all had this running dialogue, like, why did God choose Abraham? And there's all these uh, Jewish writings, just tons of them, that give these different reasons why why God chose Abraham. And every one of them depends upon the fact that Abraham was just a really good guy. Abraham, it's said in these Jewish writings, obeyed the entire Mosaic law before it was even given. That's how good he was, right? Uh, the book of 1 Maccabees, some of you may have heard that. It's in, it's in uh, some Bibles, uh, the Bibles that Catholicism uses. It's a, a, a major uh, Jewish source just prior to the coming of Jesus declares that God declared Abraham righteous because of his obedience in testing, right? Jews would say that Abraham was saved by a gracious God, yes, a gracious God, but on the basis of Abraham's life, 
on the basis of all that he did, on the basis of his works. Now, look at verse 2 with me here. Paul asserts that if Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his life, because of his obedience, because of his faithfulness, because of his piety, then in fact, he has a reason to boast. He can go around self-confidently saying, look at me, I'm not like all these other guys, all these other people out in the world that are committing crimes, that are just kind of selfish scumbags. I'm not like them. I've just lived a life above reproach. That's what I've done. I'm a man of integrity, right? It says verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, right? He's got some reason for self-confidence. He's got a point of pride. But Paul says, not before God. Now, what he's not saying is that Abraham could boast in front of the people of his day or come to, to Reno, show up here this morning and boast before us about his works, but not God. No, what he's saying is, if Abraham was saved by works, he could boast. But then he says, but he really doesn't have a reason, any reason to boast, not before God. And the reason I say that is look at the first word of verse 3. It's telling us the reason why Abraham can't boast. Because of something the Old Testament definitively, clearly declares. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. You don't even need to turn your page because we'd just be reading the same thing, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the story going on there in Genesis 15 is God is speaking to an almost 80-year-old man. Abraham was almost 80 at this point. He's absolutely childless. And God says, hey, Abraham, look up in the sky, look up in the heavens, gaze at the stars, and, and begin to count them all. And God declares, that's how numerous your offspring will be. Now, unbelievably, this octogenarian, he buys it. He believes it. He trusts God. Like, I'm 80. I've got no kids. Right? Well, what do you think if, if you didn't have any kids right now, my man? And God said, look up at the stars. That's how numerous. You're out, right? I'm out. Unbelievably, Abraham takes God at his word. And the Lord counted this faith, this trust in God's word, this belief in God's word. He counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Now, we need to make, make sure we understand what God's declaration of righteousness means for Abraham. God counted him as righteousness. Some other translations, most of the other English translations, NASB, NIV, they all say God credited it to him as righteousness. The word here is a, a commercial, a financial term, which indicates writing something in a ledger that wasn't there before you started, right? So to this point, if you think of Abraham's life as two columns, and you've got his righteousness column, what this text is declaring, what God's declaring is, Abraham, you've got nothing in this righteousness column. It's empty, but guess what? 
I'm going to write in your ledger righteousness because you actually trusted my word. My word that seemed unbelievable. O. Palmer Robertson, he's a, he was a great theologian, great missionary. He, he says this, what God did was to account to him a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Abraham did nothing to have this written in his ledger. He simply took God at his word. Now, why didn't, the question is, why didn't this righteousness inherently belong to Abraham? Why were the Jews so off about Abraham uh, being rewarded for his life? Well, if you look back at the Old Testament story, it, it tells us where God called Abram from when he calls him in Genesis 12. But later on in Joshua 24, we're told something about Abraham and his father. Listen to this. Je Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3. Joshua is recounting something here for the people. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your forefathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. See, why didn't Abraham have everything, anything in his righteousness column? Because when God initially calls him, he's just a run-of-the-mill pagan worshiping some other god of the heavens, right? He's got nothing to which God should sit point and say, well, I guess I, yeah, you've done a good job, employee. I guess I need to square up with you, give you your reward. Nope. Abe isn't worthy of the blessing or promise. He's not all that different from the other people in the world at the time, yet God graciously, completely undeserved on, on Abraham's part, graciously makes a promise to, to this idolater, which he believed as true, and God writes in the righteousness ledger, in the righteousness column of his life. It's a foreign righteousness to him. It's an alien righteousness. It's not something that's in him. You see, we're not saved, we're not justified, declared right before God by our works. We're saved by faith. But don't make the mistake here and think that faith is just kind of like this tiny little work. Like, we're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith, which is, eh, it's this little work. And that kind of gets us in the door. Let's be clear on how faith saves. There's a, a pastor named Terry Johnson. He wrote a book on uh, the five solas of the Reformation. Good book. And, and he compares faith to uh, a young boy going to a state fair with his dad, and his dad goes up to one of those games where you throw the darts and, and you have to pop all the balloons with so many darts, and then if you do, you win the prize. If not, you realize how much money you just wasted throwing darts at a, a, a board, right? And, and dad throws the darts, and he wins the prize. And then he asks his son which, which prize he wants, and, and, and the son picks out the best prize there, and Dad hands the boy the prize. So, how did the boy get the prize? Right? Well, in one sense, it's true. Like, the kid, like, opened his hands, right? Like, oh, thanks, Dad. But the boy had nothing to do at all with securing the prize. 
right? He deserves no credit whatsoever, right? The father won the prize. He deserves the credit, the father, not the son. So it is with faith. It's not faith in itself that saves us. Christ saves us, right? Our faith is only as valuable as the thing in which we trust, right? So faith really isn't valuable like, oh, I have my faith. Okay, like what's your faith in? Right? Your faith is only as valuable as the thing in which you, you have faith, in which you trust. So we're saved not by works. Abraham was not saved not by works, but by faith. So in verse 4, Paul continues to use this word counted or, or credited. Uh, continuing to use this financial parallel uh, to, to convince the Romans of this idea. Read verse 4 with me. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Put simply, if you work a job, at the end of the week, you get a paycheck. And that doesn't make your employer incredibly gracious, right? Um, That's not an incredible act of generosity on the part of your employer. Walmart isn't a charitable organization to 2.3 million people. A paycheck is earned, right? Work is done. People get up early and they stay late. They deal with people they don't want to deal with. They deal with messy financial books. They they put up with, with rude students, right? It's not earned. It's not it's not. It's not, it's not a gift. It's not grace. A paycheck is, is blood, sweat, and tears oftentimes. And in verse uh, 4 here, now to the one whose work, his wages are not counted as a gift. That word translated there, gift, is, is literally the word grace. It's charis. It's what throughout the rest of the New Testament, throughout the rest of the Romans, is translated grace. It's not grace when you get a paycheck. It's earned. It's your due. Then in verse 5, Paul presents an alternative idea to this. He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, you're not staking your life on what you're doing, you're staking your life on what, who God is and what God has done. Now, to the one who does not work, but stakes his life, his hope, his future, um, stakes it on who God is and what he's done and what he will do, that's the one to whom faith is credited as righteousness. It's the same wording as verse 3. His faith is credited, counted as righteousness. But notice, God doesn't just count kind of the empty-handed person as righteous because, well, they might offer something good in the future. They show some promise. There's this devastating, like, scandalous, it should be shocking to us, phrase in verse 5, describing God. Look at it with me. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You say, who is God? God's somebody who justifies, declares righteous the criminal, the ungodly, 
the wicked, right? God justifies the evil one. God justifies the wicked. God justifies the pedophile. God justifies the man who abuses his wife. You see, we, maybe we have a problem with that because they're not doing the right things in life. God justifies the arrogant. God justifies those who walk around angry because people aren't serving their interests. God justifies the liar. God justifies the woman who is a Muslim. God justifies the greedy. Wait, how can he declare any of these people righteous? How could God declare any of these people righteous? In Exodus 23, 7, God declares this. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent, for I will not acquit the wicked. I will not justify, declare righteous the wicked. But wait, so we have Exodus 23 saying, I'm not de going to declare the, the guilty innocent. But here in Romans 4, believe in him who justifies the wicked. What's going on here? How could God do this? Doesn't make any sense. He could do this unthinkable thing. Because as, as if you recall, if you were here last week, in verse 25, God sent Jesus to be what? To be the propitiation, to be received by faith. So that God could be just, because he's handing down a just, a, a just punishment on a wicked one. All our sins were transferred to Jesus, and now he is, is standing as wicked and the justifier of you and I, the wicked, the sinful, the evil. Paul gives an example of this God who justifies the wicked by appealing to another pillar of Judaism. Paul claims that David, King David, both experienced and taught this same truth. That, that is, that righteousness is credited apart from any actual works. Look at verse 7 and 8, and we heard it this morning in our call to worship. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice the, the, the verb or the word count or credit there again, right? This time, Think about those ledger columns. This time, the Lord is not crediting something that's, that's on the ledger of David's life. He's actually choosing not to put a debit there. He's choosing not to put his sin in the unrighteousness column. He's choosing to, to withhold that, to not count or credit his sin in that column. Think of David's life. There's so much to put in that column. He's an adulterer. He's a lustful man. He's a murderer. And God says, I'm not going to count that against him. Your lawless deeds, David, 
are forgiven. He's not crediting what is actually owed. Right? Doug Moo, commentator, writes this. He says, this is an act that has nothing to do with moral transformation, but changes people only in the sense that their relationship to God has changed. They are acquitted rather than condemned. So this isn't infused righteousness now where we're just better people. No, this is credited righteousness, reckoned righteousness, counted righteousness, imputed righteousness, as Paul uses that word elsewhere. David, though he was a vile sinner like you and me, he was counted righteous because of God's forgiveness. So from the example of Abraham and the testimony of David, we learn that justification by faith alone means that God does not consider our best efforts or our worst errors in gifting us with salvation, with justification. Is there any better news than that? It's not our best efforts. It's not your best efforts. It's not your worst errors, your worst sin, the most vile things you've done that matter, but faith in Christ that matters. He simply calls us to trust his promise, to believe that he will do what he says he will do. In verses 9 through 12, Paul wants to make it clear that justification by faith alone, it's not some special privilege for the Jew. It's for everyone. Look at it with me. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Right? So, but by some rabbinic chronology, this declaration of, of Abraham's righteousness came 20 to 30 years before he was circumcised. Right? So it has nothing to do with his quote-unquote Judaism. It has nothing to do with the, mar the mark or the sign of the covenant, the thing that the Jews trusted in so much, which is why they called him Father Abraham. God declared him righteous long before he was circumcised. And he did this so that Father Abraham could be Father Abraham, not just to the Jews, but to all those who weren't Jews. So that all those who look to Christ in faith, they're the sons of Abraham. They're the daughters of Abraham. They're the children of Abraham. So what do we think about this passage? Here's the deal. If an individual is right with God, they have been justified by faith apart from any works, apart from any lifestyle, apart from any life choices. There is no other means of salvation, not for Jews, not following the law, there is one means of salvation for Jew and not Jew. It is faith in Christ alone, right? Secondly, justification by faith alone has always been the means people were reconciled to God, right? It's the Old Testament message of salvation, right? That's what Paul's getting at in the last verse of chapter 3. Look at it with me. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Right? The people in the Old Testament were to offer sacrifices, not because the sacrifices in and of themselves were effective and because they were obeying God and now they would be forgiven. No, the sacrifices were to be offered by faith in one who is to come. You'll get to that at the end. We'll get to that in the end of Romans 9 where he says that the people didn't follow the law through faith. So justification by faith alone has always been the means of salvation for all people. So this helps us read our Bibles well. This helps us go back into the Old Testament and not be confused. Wait, am I I supposed to do good works to be accepted by God? Our, Our passage highlights something else for us. Justification by faith alone eliminates and obliterates, destroys any sorts of pride or self-confidence we can have in our lifestyle. In 327, Paul asks, he says, what becomes of boasting if faith, if salvation by faith is true, if justification by faith is true? He says, it is excluded. It's excluded. He understands that all these Jews see the Mosaic law as the ground of their relationship with God. Why God accepts them. They saw it as critical to their righteousness. But the message of Paul in the whole Old Testament is clear. Justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, apart from your obedience. And you know what? You and I, I, I'm I'm just going to guess for you. I know me. We're not, as American Christians, we're not all that different from these ancient Jews. We think that our obedience, just a little bit, just a tiny bit, it constitutes um, some sort of claim on God. Of course, we would never say that because we're good, proper evangelicals. That's what we are. But we show this belief when we begin to doubt whether God loves us anymore when we sin. Think about in the past weeks, in the past months, uh, you've done something that's it's just awful, it's just vile, and and. And the thought immediately came to mind, I don't know how God could accept me. What are you doing? Your assumption is that you're justified, you're reconciled to God, you're accepted by God, just even a little bit based on how I live my life. And so we, in moments of sin, we withdraw from pursuing God because After all, how could God still love me and accept me after that? But let's be clear. Our obedience is not a claim on God. It's not a reason for pride or it's not a reason for any confidence. Because justification is by faith alone apart from works. We are not on God's payroll. God has a payroll of exactly zero. He is indebted to not one of us. No matter what kind of moral, morally exemplary life you live, He is not indebted to give you salvation for one second. We are not on His payroll. He has no accounts to square up next Thursday. The only thing you and I have earned, according to, to Romans 6, The wages of sin, the wages of our life is death. That's what you and I have earned. That's our work on behalf of God. And so some of us need to repent this morning of our twisted 
thinking, our prideful spirit, attempting to rob God of his glory, and the fact that God alone gives salvation. He's graciously justified us, declared us right, declared us innocent, despite the fact that you and I had nothing to do with it. There's no reason for confidence in and of ourselves. Others of us have wrestled with, with feelings of shame and guilt. Some of you are wrestling with the idea of inadequacy and you think God could never accept me and therefore I, I'm really interested in, in God and the things of God, but He could never accept me because I've done A, B, C, X, Y, and Z. We're, we're fairly certain that God could never accept us as we are. And so some of you are, are battling to clean up your lives, to kind of reform your lives, to, 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 to move out some of the trash. You've hurt far too many people. You've deeply wounded somebody that trusted you. You've broken God's law. The, the, you've broken some horrible things that God tells us not to do. You've broken the, the laws of our country. You could think, I'm wicked. God could never accept me. But I want you to hear the good news proclaimed in this passage this morning. And, and listen to it as a call this morning to get rid of all those thoughts and to trust in Jesus. Listen to these words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Of course you have sinned, but the Lord, the God who created heaven and earth, chooses to cover those sins because he has presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice on your behalf. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. This morning, this scripture calls you to stop looking at your life. To stop looking at your record. To, to stop um, counting up your mess. And look to, depend upon, trust in Christ. Who lived a perfect life. And who died a horrible, bloody death as he hung on the cross. In your place. In my place. For in the place of those who would trust in him. And gives you his righteousness as a free gift. You simply trust. You simply call out to him. Men and women, listen to this. Justification, salvation, is by faith alone, period. End of story. Apart from any works. It is faith in Christ. Not our best efforts or our worst errors that saves. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? I want to take just a moment and allow you to reflect upon God's word that we've read in Romans 3 and 4.
God, we want to thank you for this good news. It's, it's good news beyond good news, beyond belief. It's shockingly good. And God, I, I pray this morning that you would humble some of, some of us. Because we've been trusting in in our lives. We've been trusting in our our so-called righteousness. We've been trusting in in the way that that we abstain from certain things and and we've been trusting in the activities that we engage in serving others. Father, we confess that we can make no claim upon you. You are not indebted to us. You give your salvation freely. So God, I pray that you will bring humility and repentance to some of us. Oh, and Father, gracious Father, I pray that you would bring joy and relief to some this morning. Knowing that their worst errors, their worst sins, their lawless deeds, their iniquities, their rebellion against you, it's been covered by Christ. That you will grant your righteousness to them if, if, if they simply look to Christ and stop, stop depending upon their own lives. God, bring joy and relief. God, I pray that by your Spirit you would, would strengthen us to, to faith, strengthen us to trust Bring salvation to your people this morning. Thank you. Thank you, God, for saving us apart from anything we do. We cling to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.